And you're listening to WMNF Tampa, and we've got a special webinar presentation from Hay, Haymarket Books. And this week it'll be the authors Astrid Taylor and Rebecca Solnit. So stay tuned. Let's jump on into it now. And thanks for listening to WMNF, your community conscious radio station. It's so lovely to be here with one of my dearest friends and greatest intellectual inspirations, Astra Taylor, who I've been talking to since the 90s when she was very, very, very young and already a brain to watch out for. I wanted to start by acknowledging that today is May 4th. Uh, the Howard Zinn website puts it this way. On May 4th, 1886, a peaceful demonstration in Chicago for the eight-hour day ended in tragedy when the police barged in and a bomb was thrown and exploded. Although no one knew who threw the bomb, eight labor organizers, all known anarchists, were blamed and tried for the conspiracy. Despite there being no evidence tying eight men to the bombing and the fact that several men were not even present at the demonstration that day, these men were singled out for their political beliefs. That's where Haymarket gets its name and Haymarket's own website when says, we take inspiration and courage from our namesakes, the Haymarket martyrs who gave their lives fighting for a better world. Their 1886 struggle for the eight hour day, which gave us May Day, the international workers holiday, reminds workers around the world that ordinary people can organize and struggle for their own liberation. I kind of love that we're both with a publisher named after the Haymarket Martyrs and the Haymarket, I'm not sure we like the word riot, and today's the day, so I thought it was worth remembering. But Astra, I also wanted to talk about another anniversary. We're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, which I think was a real turning point for your life, and uh, a lot of what I'm going to do in this event, I have like like barreled through your book and filled it with post-its and uh, copied down quotes. It's just such a remarkable book. It's wide ranging, but also really consistent. It's constantly asking questions about how do we define things? If we change the definition, maybe we change our values and then maybe we can change the world. And uh, But it goes to etymologies, quotations from an amazing array of writers and stuff to really rethink how we think about a lot of the foundational and significant things in our lives. And I uh, wanted to uh, quote a passage to start from your essay, Failing Better, uh, that touches on, on Occupy, could touch on what happened with the Haymarket um, demonstration. Um, I will not do the math on how many years ago today, because that would take a long time. But in Failing Better, you write, if a commune lasted a few years or even a decade, was it a failure or a short-lived success? If the experience of planning an anticlimactic demonstration motivated someone to develop new effective organizing tactics, should the demonstration be counted as a defeat or a victory? How, I wondered, do we define what's futile and what's worthwhile, what has an impact and what doesn't? Thank you, Thank Rebecca. You. It's really moving to hear you read those words and I just want to say I just want I guess I want to begin by saying thank you to everyone who's put this event together and thank you to Haymarket that has not only published all these wonderful books but these webinars and these uh, events that have been such a source of insight and camaraderie from afar in this pandemic so I just want to say that I'm really glad to be here and Rebecca um, 
you have left such a huge mark on me. So to get to talk to you is um, about this is just a really big honor. So I want to say thank you for taking the time to do it. Um, and you've been such an inspiration on my writing, my film, my organizing. And I think that the section you read actually is me, you know, processing um, some things that actually I took from your book, Hope in the Dark, right? Which is this idea that we, we never know the full repercussions of our actions. We don't know what's futile when we begin to organize. <laughs> and this is really, it sounds almost, it's simplistic, right? It's just this sort of fact, but it actually is, I mean, it's just essential to keep that in the fore because when you're trying to remake the world, when you're trying to um, organize with your, you know, with, with people, you really, you, you have no, you basically have no fucking clue whether it's going to work out or if it's going to make a difference. And I, I will never forget the experience of actually reading Hope in the Dark. And there's an anecdote, there's a story you tell in there about Women's Strike for Peace, right? It's just... My memory is that it's four women standing in the rain in Washington, D.C. against nuclear war, against war. And they're, they feel, you know, I, I imagine them feeling very overwhelmed, just very, very wet <laughs> and bedraggled, bedraggled out there. And in fact, somebody sees them and it leads to a bigger change. And so it's that, that sense that you kind of never know. Um, so that, that was, was part of what I'm capturing in that sentence. But then I think what the essays in Remake the World are trying to do too is like, it's well, that doesn't mean you should just go stand anywhere with a sign. You also want to be strategic. You want to understand the conditions. You want to understand the economics. You want to understand the power structures that you're trying to intervene in. So as much as, you know, you don't know what's going to happen and maybe uh, there will be some... Uh, consequence you couldn't have anticipated, you can increase your chances of being effective through analysis um, by being strategic, by building power. And and so that piece that you quoted from is the first, it's the oldest essay in the book, right? It's the one I wrote first. And I think they kind of build on each other because I've been become more steeply involved in organizing over the last, whatever, eight years since I wrote that. You know, what's also striking about it, though, is how much it relates to your own experience. And I think David Graeber was the one who got you to go to Occupy Wall Street on October 17th, uh, 11. And you and I had gone together with some other friends to a demonstration on May 14th, 2011, which is why I was like, we can do this start with anniversaries, which I love. And... Uh, Everybody was everybody outside Occupy was eager to pronounce it a failure before it had properly started. But also when it was over, people didn't adequately take stock of what had happened. And I was fascinated by how much of it was subtle, people developing a sense of their own community of possibility, et cetera. But there's also very concrete things and you found a platform and a community with which to go after debt. And, you know, I think that, you know, here you are telling the U.S. Senate and the president what to do about student debt and having liquidated, I think, a billion dollars worth of debt. And, uh, you know, and I was listening today to the radio just talking about the fact that Joe Biden is focused on making community college free. And that's the kind of agenda that comes out of Occupy. So I wanted to talk, wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about consequence and unfolding strike debt. Yeah, yeah. I had totally forgotten about that protest in May, right? And so it, you know, Occupy took off and became, you know, it was part of a global phenomenon, this movement for democracy, the movement of the squares, the Arab Spring. Um, 
the protests at the Capitol in Wisconsin. But there were lots of attempts to do something in New York that just didn't galvanize the same uh, energy and didn't have this hit the mark in the same way. You know, at the time, um, yeah, it was interesting. Like during Occupy, I felt very protective of it <laughs> because people were criticizing it without ever having visited. And my retort to them was, well, if you don't like it, come to the park, come be part of it. Right. If this isn't the protest of your dreams, then come and participate. And I also, I think, had read enough history at that point that I sort of felt like, well, the perfect movement never appears just like on a silver platter. Right. A social movement's not a pizza that you order. Now, we had pizza delivered to Occupy. But, you know, this is it's always going to be imperfect. It's always going to be fraught. You know, if you if you look past the sort of simplistic narrative, you know, hero narratives of the past that you see that actually things were always really hard. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so, you know, at the same time, I was never really satisfied with this idea that, you know, Occupy changed the conversation. To me, I want to change so much more than the conversation. I want to change mm -hmm. the political economy of our society. Uh, and so it at different points, you know, I've I felt mixed about what Occupy's legacy was. But I think now that we're coming on the 10th anniversary, I think it, it's hard to deny that it was very powerful, that it opened this enormous space um, for people to talk about inequality, to talk about class, to talk about socialism. It also just uh, revived the spirit of protest that we are seeing, you know, that has not, uh, it has not um, withered, so that's really powerful, and it's totally shifted the political terrain that we're operating on now, right? So you have, you know, a lot of the same politicians in power, but they are they are reading the, you know, they're reading the signs of the times and trying to tack left, even if it's not as much as we want them to do. And so that's where these questions of strategy, of building political power, building economic power, of committing economic disobedience, which is what we talk about in Campaign Won't Pay, are really, you know, critical. Um, but but absolutely, we're in a different world than we were 10 years ago. And um, you can say things today and sound sane. <laughs> if you said them, you know, uh, in the spring of 2011, like saying, I'm a socialist, right? I mean, it was like, it just felt like, well, what, what are the stakes? There's not really people enacting this politics and now now it's something that you know we we know that the majority of young people are uh on the same wavelength so it's a different world that's kind of a great reminder that all the well-covered story is the the um conservatives turning into this crazy radical far right that the other story is that most you know I, and i almost picture it being like the way continents form and break up and reform that like a chunk of the United States has drifted way to the right, but a, a whole lot of the rest of us have gone way to the left. And I feel like so much of what Biden is proposing that seems awesome is because the stage has been set, the terms have shifted, the, you know, we're a much more radical nation when it comes to talking about economic injustice, um, debt, uh, health care, and, uh, you know, climate, et cetera, gender trans rights. I mean, Biden standing up the other day and saying what he did about protecting trans kids is just something you can't conceive of a previous president saying, which is not to give credit to Biden, but to see the historical forces that made it possible, which is tens of millions of people whose names will never be celebrated the way presidents are changing, you know, the fabric of reality. And speaking of changing the fabric of reality, one of the great definitions in your book, and I'm going to read again. I got 
I got, hey everyone, I got her to send me a PDF so I could pull big quotes out. And um, you, you define the difference between activists and organizer. And I'm going to read a little. By contrast, organizing is cooperative by definition. It aims to bring others into the fold, to build and exercise shared power. Organizing, as Jonathan Schmucker smartly defines it, involves turning, quote, a social block into a political force, unquote. Today, anyone can be an activist, even someone who operates alone, accountable to no one. For example, relentlessly trying to raise awareness about a, an important issue. Raising awareness can be extremely valuable, at least I hope so, since I've spent so much time trying to do it. But education is not organizing, which involves not just enlightening whoever happens to encounter your message, but also aggregating people around common interests so they can strategically wield their combined strength. Organizing is long-term and often tedious work that entails creating infrastructure and institutions, finding points of vulnerability and leverage in the situation you want to transform, and convincing atomized individuals to recognize they are on the same team and to behave like it. That's a tall order, lady. <laughs> it's a tall order. It's interesting because I think even, you know, I think I wrote that in maybe 2015 or 16, and I think there's... Uh, much more investment in organizing actually than when I wrote it, right? I think people, I mean, this is the thing, the political climate is changing, but that's changing because people are engaging in different ways. Um, it feels like this idea that organizing is something really significant, that it's, it's, it's uniting people into a block to engage strategically. And whether that means you know wielding economic power, through, so through strikes, you know, a labor um, stoppages, or through debt strikes, uh, through you know, primarying Democrats and trying to shift the political center, uh, organizing tenants, all of these things. Um, you know, people were doing them <laughs> ten years ago, but there was more of a sense of activism, right? It was more that people were in these kind of loose affinity groups or acting on their own, uh, and there was a real um, hopelessness and despair about actually having to have a large scale transformative impact. But Astrid, you were in the middle of talking about activism versus organizing, the rise of powerful organizing in the last decade, strike debt, your own work. Again, I think we're in a resurgence of organizing. I think people are re rediscovering these this tradition. Um, and also you see that in the way people are building membership organizations, right? So the rise of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, the fact that people are are forming and joining unions, like, in, you know, for example, look at the media and all of these uh, magazines and news outlets, writers and editors are actually unionizing. And so you, I think what you see in that is an awareness that, you know, it's not enough to just uh, speak our minds individually, that we have to come together and actually build organizations that can sustain and build class power. And so that means that I think the dues paying element is actually really critical that if you as a member of an organization contribute fund to sustain that organization, it will be accountable to you as opposed to having it be dependent on, for example, philanthropic dollars <laughs> or funded in a way that uh, creates a kind of disjunction there between its stated, stated goals and the way it's actually financed. So uh, in the debt collective, you know, is a union for debtors. We take inspiration from the labor movement, this idea that we have to figure out how to um, exercise economic power and uh, the idea that there's power in numbers. So this is something 
you know, that, that, you know, is, you know, you you don't go to, there are sort of organizing schools, I guess, you know, you can go and watch a Jane McAlevey webinar, which everyone should do. But it's something that for me, when I wanted to do this, I wanted to be involved in effective activism. I didn't know, you know, where to go, where to, how to learn. And I sort of learned, learned by doing with my comrades, a lot of whom I met at Occupy Wall Street, and just by reading, by reading books published by places like Haymarket, trying to learn the history and learn about these traditions that are, you know, they're not at the forefront, right? They're not what we're, we're not pushed into them the way we're pushed into other streams of life. One of the really strong essays is about uh, the sort of gerontocracy that older people who have disproportionate financial and political power and the possibility of having more youth representation with lowering the voting age and things like that. But I also wanted, but I wanted to segue from what you're just talking about, about reading books, about learning to organize. I think I could say organize again because there were earlier eras of incredible organization in the U.S. and the world. You have this wonderful thing in your piece uh, about the end of the universities and just, just a fact. In 1960, California celebrated master plan committed to making secondary education available to every high school graduate at public expense. State policymakers saw higher education as crucial to Cold War economic development and national security. And then you talk about how Ronald Reagan saw that campus uprisings is something you wanted to squelch and the, the sort of transformation. Part of what was compelling for me about that and something we've talked about before is it feels like there's not a lot of intergenerational memory when Bernie Sanders was talking about free college. It was always being framed as a, you know, and of course, God knows Bernie remembers because, you know, he's been around, but it was always framed as like, here's this crazy idea that maybe they do in other countries. And I was always trying to scream, I'm from California, the greatest public university in the world. The UC system was free into into the 1960s and almost free into the 1970s and hella cheap when I went there in the 80s. And, um, you know, so I, I wanted to think about that and about youth versus age, another one of the great definitions you dig up is that the founding fathers no doubt knew that senex, a Latin root of the word senator, means old man. Yes, so the, the, the joys of intergenerationality, the, the woes of gerontocracy, domination by people who aren't going to be around in 2075 or like our nieces and nephews, 2100. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the the thing is that so the piece on gerontocracy is about the way, as you said, that our political system, the American, the United States political system, disenfranchises young people who tend to be poorer, more diverse than the elder generation, right? I mean, this country, the demographics are changing and also the class composition of the society is changing. So, you know, I'm very much for, I think the last essay in the book, which is about climate change and time, you know, says what we need is intergenerational solidarity. And that doesn't just mean between the living, but future generations, uh, people who are not yet with us. But there's, our, our system is very skewed. And as I say, the founders designed it that way, the founding fathers. And, and we highlight the forms of exclusion you know, that are common to, we, we talk about race, we talk about gender, we even talk about the fact that people without property were excluded from uh, political rights, the beginnings of this nation. But yeah, we rarely talk about how age factors into that. And I think the, and, and we see it in our, uh, in our society now, the reason that I highlighted this 
fact that Senate means uh, that Senate <laughs> means old man is that the average senator is in their 60s or 70s, but they're also a multimillionaire, right? They do not reflect the people that they're representing. Uh, and what this means is they don't have the same concerns. So they're not as concerned about debt. They're not as concerned about climate change. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier in our discussion, younger people's politics are shifting leftward in a major way. And so we're not seeing that reflected in public policy. We're not seeing that reflected at scale. But intergenerational solidarity is so important in that historical memory. And I totally agree. This is something the Debt Collective is always saying too. We want all student debt eliminated and we want free college. And that is not radical. That happened a few generations ago. California is you know, the prime example. And we would like you know parity with Joe Biden and with Chuck Schumer and with what Bernie Sanders experienced. So I, I did the math recently and I found out that um, a student attending the same college as Joe Biden now pays four times as much in today's dollars. He also went to law school for something like 1500 bucks, which is mind blowing. Um, but you know, the problems with the past, it's not just that we want to return to the good old days because people of color were excluded from that, right? So it was the public was basically white men. <laughs> and it's in the moment that the University of California system started to diversify. So in the 60s, this is what I write about in the piece, that's when the backlash started, right? And that's when you have Ronald Reagan reacting to protesters on the Berkeley campus, reacting to uh, the rise of the black power movement at, at Merritt College, which where the junior was a junior college. And he basically says, nope, you know, we're gonna impose tuition and student debt so that you'll think twice about holding a placard, right? It, and literally he says that you won't protest once you have to pay for it. And he says the state shouldn't be in the business of subsidizing curiosity. That's Ronald Reagan in the 60s. Um, and we forget that, as you say, and we forget that history at our peril, which is why it's so important to push back against the historical amnesia and why it is so important to be in movement with people who can put our demands in perspective, right? Because yeah, <laughs> saying we should have free education and debt cancellation is not radical. We need to push to a really radical transformative horizon. Yeah, it cuts both ways. Also older people, I think I'm now one of them remember the bad old days and I'm often told, oh, feminism hasn't achieved much or it failed or whatever. And I'm like, do you have any idea what the status of women in this country was when I was born? You know, when when marriage was essentially an ownership master servant relationship and discrimination was, well, so much more legal in so many ways. And, um, but I wanted to cut back. The last essay is about climate. The first essay wonderfully weaves together so many different things that, you know, that form a whole. You start by thinking literally about breathing. You quote your sister, Sinara, uh, Sinara Taylor, about the fact that the pandemic has made us recognize that our breath can, you know, with a sneeze can extend 30 feet beyond ourselves, that we are not solid objects. We are these sort of diaphanous intersecting clouds. And so you talk about breath, which is literally inspiration and, you know, inspiring and expiring to go into your etymologies. And then you talk about conspiracy. Can, you know, and of course, there was also the summer of I can't breathe and George Floyd being deprived of his breath and stuff. Can, can you can you reweave a little of that fabric for us? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I'm trying to think of what the genesis for that piece was, but I, you know, I was thinking about how breath connected so many of the, um, I don't, I'm struggling to find the right word, is it, it, that it, it was set, at the center of so much of the suffering of 2020, 
right? In this really visceral way. Um, and so of course with uh, COVID-19, the fact that it's a disease that attacks your lungs. So people were struggling to breathe and we were having these very you know, vivid, uh, terrifying conversations about what it was like to have to be intubated, to be put on a respirator. Uh, so we're all valuing our lungs in this way, right? Uh, and of course, there were raging wildfires, especially in California, but elsewhere. So millions of acres were burning. Then, then once again, we heard the refrain, I can't breathe, um, which wasn't new, but, um, you know, is this horrible um, fact that, that Black Lives Matter and movements for racial justice have been trying to get everyone in this country to face and, you know, it turns into this, you know, powerful chant. So I was thinking a lot about uh, breath and, um, you know, I, in the essay too, I, I was thinking about as these wildfires are raging too, the fact that when, you know, we see images of our lungs that they look like these upside down forests, right? I mean, the sense that, yeah, we are, we're connected to nature because we depend on these, on trees to be able to breathe because they produce the oxygen we depend on. That we're all interconnected. I like the way you said it, that we're diaphanous, right? That that actually sounds kind of uh, beautiful. I mean, my sister in her, in the, in the essay I quote from her, she says, we're like sponges, you know? I mean, we're permeable. And so, you know, if this pandemic taught us anything, it's it's that we cannot be isolated. We are not islands. That if someone sneezes across the room, that it's eventually going to affect you, but also across the world. So, um, you know, I was thinking about that and also just thinking then about, uh, of course, all of the confusion and misinformation and all the conspiracy theories that we're traveling around about climate change, about COVID, about the wildfires, right? The fact that Antifa had actually set them and they were not related to any natural phenomenon. Uh, lasers, don't forget oh, Lauren yes. Beaufort or Marjorie, what's her name, uh, Taylor, um, no relation. Exactly, let's be clear, even though we're both from Georgia. Space laser setting them, which was um, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, you know, so going back, I really do love etymology and I, I'm, you know, I, I love it because uh, I think words contain their histories, right? Even if we're not conscious of it, that those, the, the meanings and the layers of meanings do have a power, I think, even if it's, even if it's something we're not aware of. And so I love to excavate that. Where do words come from? And I think also, you know, part of activism, right, is taking words and reclaiming them. And transforming them, you know, words of abuse turns in turn into words of power. And so I, you know, I think the way um, the way language helps us perceive and transform our world is just something that I guess as a writer I'm fascinated by, and also as an organizer. So conspiracy literally means it doesn't mean you know the wrong theory. <laughs> it means breathing together, conspiring, breathing with others, right? And when I learned that, a kind of light bulb went off and I thought, you know, well, why there are all these toxic conspiracy theories, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, is because there's this vacuum that they're filling. And that vacuum is because there isn't an alternative framework. The left basically has been suppressed. And it turns out that actually the left has literally been suppressed by what are called conspiracy laws, the conspiracy doctrines. And what did that mean? It basically meant the conspiracy was workers trying to agitate for their rights. So it gets actually right to the Haymarket uh, murders because that was what uh, led to their murder. Um, you know, I think three of them were able to get amnesty and escape that fate. But it was, you know, so that's so fascinating to me that actually 
the conspiracies that the powerful were against in the beginning, in the colonial era, through the founding of this country, were cons- the conspiracies were people organizing for higher wages. And I excavated this quote that I just have to read. Some a uh, fellow in the 19th century, and he was a kind of social reformer, and he said, if the rich meet to reduce wages, that's a conference. If the poor resist the reduction, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> and the full force of the state came down on, on people fighting the reduction of their wages. And so now you have the obliteration of unions, right? You have insecurity because people are paid nothing and they don't have uh, you know, they, they can't rely on the state to take care of them if, if something befalls them, illness or old age. And people are insecure, they're vulnerable, and those are the conditions where these awful conspiracy theories flourish. So, it, you know, to me, yeah, these, 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 this etymology helped me kind of reframe or re-understand the world that we now find ourselves in. There's two things really striking about that. One is that you're talking about the, the, psych, the psychic social body, the, the collective mind becoming vulnerable to these kind of predatory theories, the way that the social body becomes vulnerable to viruses. And there's a way QAnon and stuff, and QAnon is a kind of COVID-19 of the mind in a way. And um, But also etymologies are being intergenerational about words. What, where did this word come from? What did it use, what are its ancestors? What does it, if you, if you go back in its family tree, what does it connect to? So it's, I love them too, um, both going backwards to see what the origins of words are, what they tell us, the relationship between emergence and emergency and merging, for example. But, uh, you know, and then going forward and, you know, feminism has progressed so much by coming up with new terms. Somebody had to coin workplace sexual harassment. Somebody had to come up with domestic violence. Wife beating wasn't really going to work in the legal circles. You know, gaslighting is a fascinating word that was mansplaining. What mansplaining? Mansplaining, yeah. (laughs) So there's been a plethora of new words in recent uh, years that have allowed us to think about things in new ways, and also around racial oppression and uh, you know, and um, you know, um, gender orientation and things like that. And it's I'm fascinated how much changing the world requires changing the language. But changing the language doesn't do the job for you, but it can be a really crucial part of changing the world. And so much of what these essays do that makes them so exciting is it says, here's what looks like an intractable problem because they've been describing it and, you know, they've dominate, you know, the people who benefit from it dominate the definition of it. If we subversively transform the definition, if we find new language, if we tell a different story, um, then other possibilities open up, starting with the delegitimization of, you know, of college debt or, uh, you know, a lot of other, uh, a lot of things like that. And so the sense of transformation, you know, and of radical politics and kind of cultural analysis proceeding together is one of the real beauties of this book. And uh, here's one of the definitions that was wonderful. At the end of your discussion of whether universities should Um, cease to exist. And I have to read this sentence and I'll read the definition. One of many ironies of contemporary higher education is the fact that millions of students are mortgaging their futures to pay for classes taught by people who may not make minimum wage. And then you conclude in this essay, only if we can do that, and that is make all these transformations you talk about, 
Only if we can do that can the university live up to its name, embodying the Latin universitas, which means the whole or the world, a space for everyone where no subject is off limits. Yeah, it'd be yeah. nice to try it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it'd be nice to try it. Yeah, I mean, that. I, it's interesting. It's such a refrain now. I'm like, wow, I do this a lot. You're right in this book, um, finding these words. Another beautiful etymology in that essay is actually "skole," right, which is the root, the Greek word of word, the Greek root of the word "school," mm-hmm. which means actually it's about time. It means free time, so contemplation. It actually connotes a kind of leisure for the mind to flourish, to ex- to uh, expand, um, and so. Uh, it's you know that was something that I didn't expect to find hidden in that that word, but yeah, that essay, the end of the university, it, I wrote it uh, last spring and into it was published in the early summer, and it really is a space you know to go back to our conversation about the University of California system being free. It, it's actually me trying to think through well what is behind the what is beyond the horizon just of making college free and eliminating student debt, right? Mm-hmm. Because we we also need to transform what the educational system is and so you know really thinking well what we want is an educational system that is not exclusive right not racially exclusive the way uh way things were and remain to this day but one where you know it's not just free as in free tuition but also free as in liberating it is a place where curiosity is subsidized and so that essay talks about things like not just eliminating tuition, but reviving the old demand for open admissions, right? And saying, no, this is, you know, everyone can come in the door and get the resources they need. That means a lot more investment in every student. That means a lot more resources. Um, That means not having an educational system where people are adjuncts and underpaid uh, in making minimum wage, as I say. So really trying to think beyond, yeah, think beyond the kind of nostalgia for the old, old days, you know, when tuition was affordable or free to the horizon to like a something that's really worth organizing for i think that's it too right like something that's actually worth doing all the hard work that's going to be required to get there there's a lot of utopian sense of possibility in this including that conversation you had was it in saint petersburg um with young people asking them what socialism is and I don't know if this puts you on the spot, but can you recall some of your conversation with the young black person redefining defining what a black socialism would be? And yeah, you want to talk Florida. about the resurgence of socialism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so one thing I, you know, think essays are a fun form. I know you love the essay. You've published about 100 of them with A-Market. <laughs> but because you can incorporate these different elements, right? It's, 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 um, there can kind of be that journalistic encounter, you know, so I like to kind of quote people I've just met on the street, like these these folks I met at a cafe in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, and then this etymology and then theoretical analysis and weave it all together. So that's a piece about the resurgence of socialism, which you know, to me really is one of the bright spots <laughs> uh, of, of our time. And kind of talking about what it means to people and um and so i was in florida showing my film what is democracy and i went to this cafe um and i I say this in the piece but i overheard these this group of young folks maybe like four or five of them and they were obviously engaging in some kind of community organizing and they had dream defender buttons on them uh you know and i'm uh, there are actually people involved in Dream Defenders, which is an amazing racial and economic justice and socialist group based in Florida, and 
uh, I filmed with people who are in Miami, so they're actually in What is Democracy? And so I just kind of walked up to them and, and I was writing this piece on the resurgence of socialism and I was like, so, hi, my name is Astra. Can you tell me what you think about socialism? And I swear that they just were, their reaction to me was like, who are you? Why are you butting into our cafe conversation? And why do you want to know that? So they were a bit suspicious. Um, but after after a moment, you know, they said things that were just so astute and basically, you know, recognizing uh, a really key point that sociologists have made, and I think it can't be made enough, which is that white middle class Americans benefit from all sorts of state services, right? So they have a kind of socialism, you know, um, but they are not forced to face it. It comes in the form of mortgage interest deductions, right? Or being right, a lot of it is like in the tax code. So you're able to write off depreciations of, you know, the things you've purchased and, uh, or, you know, uh, another, you know, really shocking uh, result of one survey was that, you know, most people, a, a lot of people who are getting social security, uh, you know, getting government benefits, don't see themselves, actually, they, they will say that I don't get any welfare, I don't get any benefits, because they imagine that they paid, they're, they're almost like you see themselves as getting a service they paid for, right? And uh, whereas, so these, these benefits that really help uh, the white middle class are invisibilized, they're destigmatized, right? Whereas if you get food stamps, Right, it's highly, uh, you know, it's highly stigmatized. So that was one thing we talked about, which is this incredible double standard of who gets state support. Uh, and the sociologist Susan Mettler calls it the submerged state. And so one thing that that conversation really, you know, did for me was, it was just, you know, I think part of our task, if we want to build a more equitable society, is bring out that submerged state, bring it open into the open, and say, okay, actually, there are all of these subsidies. There is all of this state support. You're not just affluent or secure on your own. Um, and then, yeah, they talked a lot about, um, you know, the need to put racial justice at the center, right? And that there was a kind of leftist uh, uh, that, you know, there's kind of leftism that, that they felt didn't have enough attention to that, that was, you know, basically thought that it was all about economics, as though economics can be separated from race in the United States. It can't. So, you know, it was a, I, that's one thing. But it was just that conversation. I love having the excuse to talk to strangers. I mean, it's harder during a pandemic, but I think that's always why I like to have an essay cooking so I can inter I can just reach across the void and ask people what they're thinking. <laughs> of course, the etymology of essay is French essay to try, which I've always loved. The sense that it's an, an, it's an endeavor that might be experimental, it might fail in some sense, but but, you know, to try is different than to assume, you know, to sort of color within the lines and, and reliably accomplish. And um, so what is di different than an op-ed, right? Like to, an essay is yeah. trying and it's thinking instead of saying in 800 words, I will tell you my position. And, you know, um, it probably should have been a tweet. <laughs> you know, I always think of oh, there's somebody did a really funny cartoon on Twitter of like, you know, and looking at kind of New York Times conservatives, like the eight columns they write about, let's listen to Trump voters again, why, you know, why people, why this group should, doesn't really count, and et cetera. But, um, but yeah, and a, an op-ed is usually kind of laying down the law. And I think in a, I, and I think in a larger sense in writing that there's writing that tries to open things up and that tries to close things down. There's a kind of definitive statement that assumes it should be followed by silence versus 
how I hope a lot of my work happens, which is that it's part of a conversation. I'm responding to what's already been said. It will cause more things to be said, which I hope that I'll listen to, listening being another important word and essay topic in your thing and stuff. And it feels like two really different orientations, those who just want to lay down the law and have the last word, you know, Mm-hmm. hoping that nobody can even respond because it was so authoritative versus people who are like, I'm engaged in a conversation. One of the scary things now is that we're all learning and, you know, sometimes your opinion from last year doesn't totally make, you know, make it up to this year's standard. But that room, you know, so I worry about sometimes about that room for experimentation. But it is, you know, a process of discovery and learning. And one of the things I've been so fascinated by in the last several years is the way in which, you know, we're all in a seminar together to rethink gender, sexuality, race, economics, justice, climate, nature, breath, etc. I was reading the stand-up comic commentator W. Kamau Bell recently where he was talking about how he framed something five years ago and he's like, but of course I wouldn't frame it that way now because I understand it so much better. And I love seeing somebody publicly acknowledge as Alicia Garza often does that we're all on a we're all we're all learning and uh, you know and just what we know changes so you know changes so much and I feel like for those who are who were up for listening you know those of us who aren't trans got an incredible course in recognizing and um, trans issues and respecting trans rights and defending them it's you know, it's a very different things. You know, there's also a lot of backlash and stuff. So I'm fascinated by that process, and as it opens things up, and an essay, I feel like, invites more conversation and response and response to what came before. It's a kind of anti-authoritative writing, and it's yeah, yeah. yeah. I really, I, I mean, and that you're the master of this form, you know. And but I think it's no gods. <laughs> masters no exactly you're you're a practitioner a constant learner of this form i mean it's i think there's two things about it i mean one is that i don't particularly like to be uh spoken to in a really dogmatic way or like you know it's sort of this has all been figured out it's been distilled to its 10 points and you know now get in line and i also think um so I, I think I'm trying to, in the essays, always bring people along on the intellectual journey, right? The journey of discovery and, you know, kind of showing them what's captured my curiosity, thinking that it might capture theirs as well and spark some thoughts that I'm not in control of. But to me, it also relates to the the, the ethos we have to have as organizers on the left, right? Like, I'm not looking for I think we need to have discipline, we need to have strategy, we need to have a deep critique of capitalism, right? But I also think that doesn't mean, again, that we're just telling people, these are your marching orders. I mean, I think we really have to cultivate a community of critical, um, responsive, engaged, curious people, right? And that it's like, to me, socialism is democratic. It involves everyone participating intellectually as well as participating, you know, politically, right? Showing up to the protest or in, or going on strike. And I guess I'm trying to model that politics and model that uh, commitment in the way that I write and the way I talk to people as well. And I do think it's feminist. I mean, I, I make that explicit in the piece on listening. And that's a piece that you're quoted in of, you know, I think 
being receptive, kind of being in this dialogue has been seen as weak and it's been seen as feminine, right? So we associate the speaker as the person with power, with authority, they tend to be masculine. And, you know, I'm trying to turn that on its head and say, no, actually, to be an intellectual is to be curious, which means you should listen a lot, right? It's actually to be confident enough to ask questions. So I definitely think there's a gendered dimension to this um, that I'm, you know, explicit about in that one essay. You can't be want to be the only voice in the room and yeah. also be a progressive socialist or anything else. But no. you, you know, if you believe in radical equality, you have to believe in listening and valuing other voices. And, uh, you know, which is one of the struggles in the motley collection of people that gets called the left, you know, and... and uh, you but know, I think that connects to activism, right? If you think that, yeah, you're a political being because you voice your opinions all the time. I mean, that's not, A, we live in a world where, you know, you can can say anything on, online, right? I mean, it's it's uh, talk is cheap. <laughs> it's actually monetized. It's monetized by Twitter and Facebook. Um, but I mean, if you want to actually build power and as you say, like be a leftist, then you, you know, it's, it's not about, yeah, it's just not about your voice, your opinions, your righteousness. It really is about becoming part of a collective project (laughs) and you gotta put yourself aside that goes back to the difference between activism and organizing activism is like you know at its worst is like i have the answer everyone listen and do what i tell and you one of the weird things i've seen all my life is you'll get some somebody usually a white guy piping up out of the blue where he's got the beautiful blueprint for what everybody should do. He's made it up himself. He hasn't looked about whether it's redundant. He hasn't seen whether people want to do it. You know, he hasn't really, he hasn't, he's not thinking like an organizer where it's like, what is it that people already desire that I can help facilitate? What is, you know, what human, what, what is the human nature we're dealing with? He's just kind of, you know, in love with his own, awesomeness and kind of handing it down from on high and of course it's it's the only thing left about it is the left fieldness of it you know it comes out of left field and it's often just so disruptive and uh you know and the opposite is how do you engage with what what the community actually needs maybe the ultimate story is of Comandante marcos who goes down to teach the indigenous people learns and instead of telling them what to do, learns what to do, and becomes part of the Zapatista movement that revolutionizes how we're going to think about revolution itself and power and how change works, um, you know, and, and gives us this beautiful new poetic language of, of politics as well. And um, I'm kind of thinking, I was, I wanted to read one more thing, um, and maybe you can respond to it and we can go to questions. Uh, towards the very end of the book, you toss, you engage in almost a de-definition rather than a definition. You say, what are rights anyway? We invoke them all the time, but they are not easy to define and rarely if ever absolute. As anyone who has spent time pinned up in a free speech pen at a protest knows too well. A right is not some strange substance that one either has or has not, Stone points out in trees. One's life, one's right to vote, one's property can all be taken away. But those who would infringe on them must go through certain procedures to do so. Those procedures are a measure of what we value in society. You know, 
So this definition yeah. of rights as almost comes back to the def, you know, to the human body as being made up of breath, which dissolves the boundaries. Is the the kind of inter interfusedness of and of things, the interconnectedness. Yeah, that's an essay that's from Who Speaks for the Trees, which is about movements to extend rights to nature. And that's building obviously on indigenous traditions uh, where, uh, you know, rivers, mountains, sacred spaces actually are recognized as vital and, and not just as, as objects or property. Um, but it's something, it's you know, something that's happening around the United States. Um, and uh, Lake Erie was recently granted rights, for example. And, um, you know, it's also me wrestling with, you know, and that's so many of these are me really thinking through, well, why do I think of rights? Because we, we say we invoke them all the time and they are kind of empty and they can be very individualist. And there's some very, you know, compelling, um, there are very compelling critiques of rights discourse, right? That they're just inadequate. Um, they're inadequate protections, they're inadequate shields against inequality, against the state. Um, and and so uh, in that piece, you know, I'm I'm saying again, you know, there, there are tools that we have to use, but we have to think more expansively about it, right? Like what we need to think about rights as being collective, not just individual and not just being um, sort of defensive, but as being, uh, being uh, you know, entitlements to economic security, to education, to healthcare, right? So these collective social rights. Um, but then, yeah, going into extending them to nature, extending them to animals, <laughs> which I think that's where I'm like, I think rights would be revolutionary in that context. Um, you know, if we think beyond the realm of, of the human. So it's, you know, that essay I is when I had a lot of fun writing. And I think I had, a, you know, it's because it's this, for me, it's that the organizers who are pushing this this uh, at the municipal level for the rights of nature for the rights uh, they're doing it in very they're doing it for very pragmatic reasons they're typically trying to stop fracking in their community or to stop uh, injection wells which are where all the toxic waste comes from you know as a re that results from fracking and they can literally stop these gas companies for years and years and years by saying, no, these ecosystems have rights. And for me, it's exactly, you know, it's one of these examples of this wonderful mix of the utopian and the practical. <laughs> and just thinking beyond the boundaries of the present and beyond the constraints of our political system, our limited conceptions of rights. Uh, and and um, while also just putting this wonderful sand in the gears of this extra ecologically extractive and destructive machinery we're in. So, um, you know, I think that those are the kinds of movements that I think personally make me the most excited that can open these horizons. You know, I think the debt collective does that in a in a in one way, right? Imagine a world without debt, jubilee for all. <laughs> um, why do we have to pay pay these debts? Uh, and then, but also then drilling down and going, well, actually, how do we do this? How do we concretely make people's lives better? How do we, you know, uh, in the here and now, let's have, like, I also want results. Um, so, you know, the that that duality, I guess, is a constant refrain in, in the pieces that I'm writing and things that I'm drawn towards. Anthony, can we switch to questions now? If we yeah, I, I have a few questions uh, I can bring in. Um, one uh, is a question, uh, Astra, if you could talk about a term you use in the book, which I believe you originated, uh, called 
photomation. If you could explain kind of where that came from and, and what what work you're you're trying to think through with that term. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's the one word I made up because I, I loved when you were talking, Rebecca, about the fact that we do have to create new language and new words. Um, this word is not, unfortunately, it's not a word that describes the world we want to live in. <laughs> it's, a word, it's a word that I came up with to describe an activity that is uh, really troubling. So, photomation is basically fo, F-A-U-X, right, and automation, so fake automation and this is you know i'm very you know i've been very invested in writing about technology and thinking about the way digital tools have accelerated many of the negative aspects of capitalism started with the people's platform in 2014 and so i was keeping up with the uh, ai debates you know in all of the statements being made by economists and business executives, you know, the sort of robot revolution, robots are going to come and take your job kind of discourse. And uh, if you scratch below the surface, though, it's not true. <laughs> the robots haven't taken people's jobs. They aren't doing the work. And this was driven home for me. I was standing in line, I was standing in line, ordering lunch, and the guy in front of me said, uh, he said something like, how did, how did you... How did the how did the app know that the the my meal was going to be done 15 minutes early? And the worker at the cafe was like, "I texted you." Like he had thought he basically thought this all-seeing robot had like made his lunch and sent him an update or something like that. And what he just thought was like, "Wow, this what this technology is doing is it's just making human labor invisible. It's not doing the labor. It's just obscuring." what's actually going on. And there are so many examples of it. Once you see it that way, it's just all over the place. And, you know, it's it's purposeful. It's a way of making workers feel vulnerable. Uh, you know, this idea that the robot is always there. So now workers aren't just in competition with each other. <laughs> they're in competition with the machines who are coming for their jobs. And so I think, you know, instead of robots taking our jobs, we need to say, no, employers are making targeted investments in technologies that will make work less uh, dignified, less well paid and make workers more insecure. And so that's what this word photomation is trying to get at. And then I point to the uh, tradition of socialist feminism and to Silvia Federici as a framework that can help us rethink our relationship to machines and the fact that, you know, we're not going to be obsolete. You know, one of the lines from the piece is, don't let them make you think that you're disposable, right, that you can be replaced by technology. There's so much meaningful work for humans to do. This has been a special webinar presentation from Haymarket Books on WMNF. It was a conversation with Astral Taylor and talk with Rebecca Solit this week on WMNF, Tampa, St. Pete, your community conscious radio station.